we've been talking about the, uh, the life of Jesus. Jesus, uh, his, his birth, His uh, incarnation, His uh, God-man lifestyle. Tonight we're going to talk about Jesus, His death, burial, and uh, His death and burial. You may need to put on your thinking cap toward the end of this to try to figure out what I've said or what I'm uh, mean, meant to say. We live in a death-denying culture, I think. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about it. We don't even plan on it. Um, I read some amazing um, statistics not long ago about how many people die without being prepared, um, not just spiritually unprepared, but no um, work done on a will, no preparation for what happens to your possessions when you leave this life. We don't like to talk about it. We don't even like to prepare for it. But when we're inevitably faced with it, we try to camouflage it. And we don't use words like death or dead. We use words like he passed away or he went away or he just went away to be with the Lord. So that we deny death and we fear death. I think there are several reasons why we deny death and refuse to deal with it in a, in a uh, uh, reasonable way. One is, is because we don't have enough information about it. Nobody's been out there in death and come back to tell us what it was like. Does it kind of surprise you that we have an account in the scripture of a man who was brought back from death and never said a word about it? You'd think that Lazarus would give us some kind of information about what he uh, found when he died. We don't have that much information about it. A lot of speculation and a lot of glowing sermons about death. Most of them are literally figments of the imagination. I think another reason we deny it is that we think we're invincible. Somehow we feel like we're not going to die. You know, for some strange reason, we get an idea that this is not going to happen to me. Or maybe when I get real old and I'll deal with it then. But not now. And I think that we deny it or we refuse to think about it, talk about it, face it, is because we know that it is often mixed with suffering. Now in cold, blunt terms, a physician named Cobb Put it like this, death comes to people in different ways. It can be peaceful and pleasant or violent and painful. To some, death comes calmly. They simply stop breathing. Others die in convulsive horror. Terminal illness can be terribly disfiguring, loss of hair, shortness of breath, dizziness and nausea. It can also cause tremendous discomfort. Mental acuity may become impaired or lost completely. In short, we're afraid of what terminal illness can do for us, both physically and mentally. For we don't know if we can tolerate our condition as we die. Has it ever occurred to you that even though you and I don't like to think about death, 
And we, have a, uh, a, we make a practice of denying it. Jesus didn't have that option. His obituary was written eight centuries before he was born. So that from the time of his birth, the shadow of his death increased in, and deepened across the path of his life. So they had no option about whether or not he faced death or not. And he came to die this premature death at an age when most are beginning to smell success. And on top of all of this, his death was the death of a cross which defies the imagination. You think this physician put it in blunt terms. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53 and see how Jesus faced his death or read about his death. Listen to this, beginning verse three of Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. I'm getting a little bit of ring back, kick back there, Charlie. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now I want you to notice these words, acquainted with grief, despised, esteemed, stricken, smitten, pierced through, crushed, chastened. Have it ever occurred to you that Jesus could read this about himself before he faced it himself? I mean, this passage from Isaiah was available to Jesus for him to read. So and when he picked this up, he read about his own death, how it would happen, and what would occur, and that's what he faced. Before his mother pregnancy came to full term, this was the destiny of Jesus. And before his little lungs sucked in breath, this was the goal of his life, to accomplish the mission of redemption. Unlike us, our goal is to survive. His goal was not to survive. Now the question is, did he understand, and when did he begin to understand that this was a part of what he was going to you know, be about in the world. Well, at least we know that he talked about it with his disciples. So you turn to the 16th chapter of Matthew and let's look at those verses. The 16th chapter of Matthew. And we'll begin reading, look at, read, uh, read verse 21 first. Now our culture is to camouflage it, deny it, don't think about it, don't talk about it. Jesus read about his death, how it was going to happen. 
talks about it to his disciples. This is what he said. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I can't face the thought of this. This is not going to happen to you. But he turned to P- and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Now, what's the implication of this? God's interest in Jesus' life God's interest in Jesus was that he suffer and die. And Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish God's intent. I'm going to go there and suffer and die. And Satan wants to keep me off the cross because if he does, he's defeated God's mission for me. And I don't want you to be a part of his emissary. Don't try to stop me because this is the divine intent. I'm here to die. Now, turn over one a page or two to uh, chapter 17, beginning at verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. We're going to talk about the resurrection next week, so we skip that. And they were deeply grieved. Chapter 20, verse 17. And Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he even describes how he's going to die, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and and crucify him. So he's saying, not only am I going to die, but this is how it's going to happen. The Gentiles will scourge me. In other words, crucifixion was a Roman means of execution. The Romans will scourge me, and the Jews will crucify me. And in the 26th chapter, he talks about two days before the Passover, what's going to happen. Let's look at that. Chapter 26. Verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Now you say, well, Pastor, why are you going through all of this? You know, well, it's a good question. The answer is this, is that for whatever reason, Jesus came. He came to die. Now he did teach an ethic that we still observe. And he was a moral example that we still follow. And he was this wonderful man who lived in history, probably history's most outstanding person. But he did not come to teach an ethic, and he did not come to be a moral example, and he did not come to make a name for himself in history. He came in order to die. Now I want you to turn to John 13. 
The point is that if he came, and that was the mission of redemption, for him to die, it was necessary for him to die in order for you to be redeemed. We'll look at that in just a minute. So let's look at John 13. Now these two days have arrived that he talked about in the coming of the Passover, and he gets along with two, with his men in a second story flat. There are 13 of them. And they're eating this Passover meal. Passover meal was um, a meal that reminded them of the Exodus. Now you get the principles of the Christian life in the New Testament. And you get the pictures of the Christian life in the Old Testament. And the Exodus in the Old Testament pictures the work of redemption. That's why they took the blood and put it over the doorposts and everybody's they had the blood over the post. The death angel passed by and spared that person, that firstborn. And all of that is a picture of the passing over which was the result of the blood. And they, every year they gathered for the Passover meal and they ate this roasted lamb and these bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of the wilderness wanderings. And they had this unleavened bread, unleavened, uh, suggesting that sin was to be removed. The bread that was going to sustain them was without sin. And they put this unleavened bread in a sop and he passed it around. Now look at verse 21. And Jesus had said this, he became troubled in his spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. Now everybody knows who that is, but they didn't know in that upper room. As a matter of fact, Judas was the last one they would have fought. Now let me show you, you say, well, how do I know that? Well, Judas was the most trusted one of the disciples. He carried the purse. He probably was the most intelligent one of the group. There are some who suggest that he was multilingual. He could speak several languages. He was more uh, refined and sophisticated. He was the only one who came from Judea. The rest came from Galilee. And they, was so, they, they so trusted Judas that after had, they had this discussion about one who is going to betray me when he went out into the night, they never once thought it was him. They, they thought he left so he could go out and give some offering to the poor. Now comes Gethsemane. If you struggle with humanity, struggle no more, for all, all Isaiah, the prophet said, is now being accomplished. And Jesus is facing this and he cries, if there is some other way, but there is no other way. There is no other way of redemption except he suffer and die. I need you to nail that down in your mind. All right, now skipping over the trials, I won't, we won't get into that because I want to do something else, but I want you to turn to John 19 and look at verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. They had this kind of a um, uh, drink that was, that, that was like medication. It medicated. It, was a, it numbs you. 
And they offered this numbing drink to Jesus and brought it to his mouth. And and when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai is the Greek word. It is finished. Tetelestai. Now the word is not a word that means simply it's done, it's, fin- it's over. We, we translate, translate, it is finished. But the word has a deeper meaning than that. It's, it's heavier than that. It means the mission is accomplished. Everything that is required is fulfilled. It is a word that means the mission accomplished. Mission completed. Now, what was the mission of Jesus? His mission was to accomplish redemption through death. And now it's over, finished, complete. To illustrate it, the the cross is kind of like a steel mill where the materials are uh, are welded and assembled that builds a bridge from man to God. The cross is kind of like a sawmill where the ship that spans the gulf between man and God is completed, finished. The cross is kind of like a slaughterhouse where the blood sacrifice that the law required is, is, is brought about. Now the question is, what does it matter that Jesus died And what necessitated the death of Christ? How does the cross save us? And what did he accomplish in his death by which we are saved? That's that's a question. How did the cross of Jesus and his death accomplish salvation for us? And what did it matter, what necessitated his death? Take the word and underline, what made his death necessary? That's what I want to spend the rest of time on since we're in the neighborhood. Take 10 minutes to do it, maybe 15. Now I need to say two things up front. I need you to jot this down if you can't remember it. So I need to say this, these two things about his death up front. That the Messiah of the Old Testament the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy is a suffering Messiah. So that when you find the Messiah in the Old Testament, He is always pictured as a suffering Messiah. Now, um, occasionally you and I will um, encounter, uh, you know, someone of the Jewish faith. I'm, I'm uh, visiting now with a man, or have been, discipling a man who was, who was just recently saved, who was a Jew. Now, now how is it that the Jews, have, you know, have reject, rejected Jesus? Well, to the Jew, the Messiah was this earthly king who was going to come and reestablish or, or accomplish again the Davidic glory, the Davidic kingdom. He's going to come and establish an earthly kingdom like David's reign. And how the Jew could miss the fact that Messiah in the Old Testament is pictured as suffering, dying Messiah is is beyond us. 
who are of the evangelical faith. He is pictured as the suffering Messiah. Second, Jesus came to die and that was the object of his mission and his death accomplished something for us that we could not accomplish for ourselves. Now the question is, what was it that his death accomplished that we could not, could never accomplish and what necessitated the death of Christ? And how does the cross save us? Now I want to deal just a minute uh, with some uh, theories that surround, I was talking to somebody a little bit earlier that when we uh, talk about the death of Jesus, most of the time we focus in on one particular aspect of his death. And, and if you go and hear some evangelist preach on the death of Christ, he'll have illustrations that focus in on one aspect of the death of Jesus. But there is much more than just one aspect about his death that we need to talk about tonight, although you can't take, uh, it's, it's not really um, uh, exegetically correct to take one aspect and put it aside and focus on that. It takes all of these aspects together for us to understand what this is all about. Okay, number one, there is a moral necessity for the cross. A moral necessity for the cross. Now, in relation to man's sins, the God of the Bible is a God of moral earnestness so that there is a necessary reaction of a holy God toward sin and against the sin of man. So if God simply disregards sin as though it didn't matter, then he could not be a moral God. We can all agree with that. There is a moral necessity. So if God cannot disregard sin, what can he do about it? If he can't disregard it, then he must mete out exact punishment to every individual sin to every individual sinner. Now did you hear that? If he can't disregard it, then every individual sinner must come under his judgment. Now watch this carefully. The cross therefore vindicates the righteousness of God in our salvation. And by this we mean that the cross shows that God saves us on the principles of righteousness. The cross makes it clear that, God, that in saving man, God did not compromise with sin. He did not compromise with sin. So that the condemnation of sin in the cross is more than an exhibition of retributive justice. It is the condemnation that God meets out upon one instead of all. Now watch carefully. There are two influential theories of the atonement that dealt with this matter from the standpoint of vindicating the righteousness of God. His righteousness was vindicated. That's what Paul is asking. He says, how can God forgive the sinner and remain a righteous God? How can he do that? 
How can, he make, how can he be just and justifier at the same time? Oh, what a question. And it's, a, it's, it's at the heart of the theological issue. How can God be just and justifier at the same time? And there are two great influential theories that, that relate to this. One is called the governmental theory. It was espoused, it was um, uh, given birth by a lawyer by the name of Grotius. He's an, he, he lived centuries ago. This is his theory. That the necessity for satisfaction of God for sin was based upon the government of the universe. This, this is his theory, just in plain language. He said that God established a moral universe based upon a government, and there were laws in this universe that everybody must follow. And when man breaks the law, then God is bound to, to uh, as a righteous God, as the governor of the universe, he must punish the lawbreaker or the universe no longer has a law. You know what I'm saying? So there is this law in the universe and God is the governor of the universe and he is bound by law to punish the lawbreaker or else he lays aside a universe of law. Second theory. It's called the penal theory. Now, Anselm was the father of the penal theory. This is what it says. It says that there must be judgment or punishment to satisfy God's honor. Now, here's what he says. Here is this holy God and this, this God of holiness, transcendent holy other God, was, was uh, violated. He, he, man rebelled against him. And in order for God's offended honor to be satisfied, a person's going to have to pay for that. Now, we see it, you know, you watch a good Western, you know, last night I turned on and there was Matt Dillon. I thought he died. <laughs> Matt Dillon was on there. And he, he gets, uh, somebody does him wrong and he goes out to haul him in, you know. And uh, he tells his daughter, he says, honey, I'm a man and I've been offended and I just can't turn my back on that. Well, that's a simplistic idea of the penal theory. God has been offended by man's sin, and as a holy God, he must, he must um, punish that offense. Now, this theory insisted on the substitutionary aspect of Christ's work. Now, watch this carefully. If God's honor has been violated, then God has the, uh, the right and the authority to choose how he's going to render punishment for that. He can punish the sinner who violated his honor, or he can punish a substitute for that. Now, I go to, I, I uh, talk to my um, little kids, you know, in Bible school, and I got this little story I tell. They don't remember anything else, they remember this story. It's a story about a one-room school, about kind of like a little house on the prairie, you know, one-room school, and the, and the schoolmaster, you've heard this story. Schoolmaster comes in, he puts up the rules up on the board. He says, now these are the rules, and I'm the teacher, and I make the rules, and you break the rules, you get punished, and he hangs a strap. Strop, my dad used to call it. It's a 
a, 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 not a paddle, but a leather whip. Puts it upon the boy, says if he breaks the rules, gets the strop. And one day a little boy, this little boy, obviously he's poor, wears an old coat, and wears this coat in the summertime and the wintertime, an old coat. He's hungry, doesn't have anything to eat, so he steals this little boy's lunch. Little boy goes and tells the teacher, somebody stole my lunch. He gets them all in and he finds out who, who did it. All of a sudden, it, it's obvious, it's the little boy in the old coat. And the teacher loves him and he feels sorry for him. He doesn't want to punish him, but he's broken the rules. He's violated the preacher's honor, or the teacher's honor. Preacher too, maybe, but the teacher in this story, he violated the teacher's honor. And the teacher calls him up there. He said, now, did you understand the rules? He said, yes, sir. He said, did you disobey the rules? He said, yes, sir. He said, what is the punishment? He said, I get the strop. Now, he didn't want to punish him. He loves him. He feels sorry for him. He said, take off your coat. The little boy said, I, I, no, please don't make me take a, takes, takes off the coat. He doesn't have a shirt on. Doesn't even have a shirt. So he reaches up to get the strop, and at the back of the schoolroom, the little boy stands up and said, don't whip him. I'll take his place. Guess who that little boy was? Teacher's son. You know, it, it gets real, you know, he added a little stuff like, teacher's son. And the teacher's son comes forward and steps into the place of the boy who has violated the rules and disobeyed the teacher and takes the punishment that the violator deserves. The penal theory is based on that. It's substitutionary and vicarious. That means that we violated God. We, 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 to, to sin against God means that I thumb my nose at Him. I shake my fist at Him and I rebel against Him. It's rebellion against the Creator of the universe. And so he says, all right, you sin against me. You deserve the punishment for that sin. And all of a sudden, the Son of God steps in, takes my place, takes my punishment. That's the substitutionary, vicarious idea. Now, there's a weakness in that. And you've already sensed it. The weakness is, is that it tends to, to run a line of cleavage between the justice of God and the mercy of God. It says he might exercise mercy, but he must punish sin. You see, that, there's, that's the weakness of this. But the strength of it is, is that it emphasizes the, necessary, the necessity of Christ's death. For it says that a penalty must be paid when a man sins. And that penalty must be borne on the part of the sinner or somebody who took the sinner's place. He could be saved only in case somebody suffers the penalty for him. See? And that's what the cross is about. And the ground of this is based in the Old Testament sacrificial system. For blood had to be shed and a sacrifice had to be made in order for sin to have atonement. 
And so they brought these animals and they went through this process of saying, okay, I've sinned, but I brought this animal and it's going to be sacrificed in my place. And all of that points to the fact that there would be a supreme sacrifice once and for all for us. Now, um, Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Now that word for there in the Greek is the, is the Greek word anti, and it means instead of. Now I don't know if you've heard it translated like this, but it says in essence that Jesus came and gave his life instead of me. Now I know my time is up. Can I, ha can I have three more minutes? Uh, one guy agrees to it. The rest of you didn't, so it won. He wins by one. Okay, I win by one. Okay. It, not only was it substitutionary and, vi and vicarious, it was, what's this big word? Propitiatory. Propitiatory. Now in classical Greek, the word propitiatory, and you see it in three places, for example, there are other places, but I'll show you those three in a minute. But in classical Greek, that word means to render favorable so that Christ did not render God favorable, what he did was that he so dealt with human sin as to make it possible for God to show his favor. That's what is meant by propitiation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, if you want to jot these down, Hebrews 2, 17, and Romans 3, 25 talk about his propitiation for our sin, and it meant this. So that's even, get this, that word can be translated pacify. That's a negative idea for us, though. It says God is pacified. We say, wait a minute, I don't like that. Well, I don't either. But what that means is, is that what happened when Jesus died for us was that it made it possible for God to forgive our sin. He, it made it favorable for God to forgive our sin. Now, I want to deal with the last theory. I'm going to skip some because I know you've got homemade ice cream. It's interesting to me that it, some of us have already slipped out. I'm watching here and out headed for the ice cream, I guess, to help us down there. But hang in there. We'll have plenty. I want to talk finally about the cross as a victory over sin. Now I believe at the heart what we're talking about is this. I don't know whether you've ever heard this taught or preached or not, but you need to hear this. His death was vicarious and substitutionary. It, it paid, it, 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 it was, uh, accomplished the righteous justice of God. It was propitiatory, propitiatory. It meant that it made favorable God's forgiveness. But at the heart of it was, is that, they, that the cross accomplished victory over sin. Now hang in here with me. The scripture says in Mark 10, 45, that his, he was given a ransom for many. A ransom for many. Now Anselm came in. This, this view, by the way, was, uh, was a view that was accepted for a thousand years, all the way up to Origen and Augustine. One of these men all agree, uh, you know, espoused this view. Now the question came, this is a silly question, but we ask silly questions. If he gave his life a ransom, and that means to gave a payment to buy someone back, to whom was the ransom given? And Anselm said, well, it had to be given to the devil. You know, 
That got, caused no small problem, but we'll deal with that later or some other time privately. The idea was that he gave his life a ransom to the devil, and here's the idea Anselm, Anselm espoused. He said that when man sinned in the fall, when man sinned in the fall, the fall gave the devil the right over mankind. That in the fall, the devil acquired man, for he fell from God and became uh, the, the, the property of the devil. You, you with me? In the fall, the devil acquired the right over mankind. And that God redeemed man from his enslaved condition by delivering Christ in death to the devil as payment and ransom. Something happened then. God pulled a fast one on the devil. He raised him from the dead. Now Anselm says that God gave Jesus to the devil as a ransom to free us. And he had Jesus as this ransom. But God pulled a, pulled a fast one on the devil. He raised Jesus from the dead. And, and in raising Jesus from the dead, he conquered him. See, pulled a fast one on him. Now, put that in the back of your mind and say, that sounds pretty weird. And let me move right quickly to this. I believe that the Bible teaches that there is, that sin is in opposition to God. Number one, sin is in opposition to God. So that, that there is this conflict in the world between God and the devil between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between the forces of righteousness and the forces of evil, there has always been this conflict. You'll have to agree with me on that, I think. This con conflict existed in the life of Jesus. It was there during His infancy. He had to flee to Egypt to stay alive. There was this conflict with Jesus in the temptation. Now what went on in the temptation was this struggle between God and the devil, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And there was a conflict at the end in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was more than Jesus just you know, facing death and, and cringing at the thought of it. There was this pressure on Jesus to go some other way, to get out of there, to flee. And he almost died under it in the garden. And I'm convinced that he prayed for Jesus, for God to spare him in the garden. He's going to die. And what he, and, and he told his disciples, always told, was telling them that as long as they followed him, they were going to always be engaged in this conflict and they were going to be hated. 1 John 3, 11 and 12 says that there's going to be, that you follow me and you're going to have this conflict. Now, watch this carefully. The cross is the climax of the conflict. Would you write that down? The cross is the climax, underlying climax, of the conflict. For if there is a conflict between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and the devil, somebody's got to win. You can't just have a tie, you know. Somebody's got to win. 
And so history was plunging toward the cross because the cross was going to be the place where the final victory was going to be accomplished one way or the other. Now, in the incarnation, we studied the incarnation last week. The incarnation is this, God coming into the world. Now, if Christ is God, and we believe He is, then he, and he came as sinless man to a fallen race, then the cross is inevitable. See, now watch this. Christ became man, and his, and his work his, and, and, and his conflict here was, was ultimately coming to this conclusion. Is he going to win or is the devil going to win? And the victory was manifested in the, revela- in the resurrection even though the conflict was won at the cross. But the victory was manifested in the revelation. Now, I want you to turn one last place. Five after, we're nearly through. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. And God raised him up again, Jesus putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, um, sin and death are inseparable. They're Siamese twins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now watch this carefully. You conquer death and you conquer sin. You conquer sin and you conquer death. They're inseparable. They're one and the same. The wages of sin is death, so if you conquer sin, you've conquered death. And if you conquer death, you've conquered sin. Now this conflict that was going on now between Jesus and the devil was not a conflict between man and the devil. That conflict had already taken place and man had lost. It was a conflict between God and the devil. And the conflict is this, that if he conquers sin, he conquers death. And if he conquers death, he conquers sin. So when he raised Jesus from the dead, he conquered death, therefore he conquered sin. And the reason he was able to raise him from the dead was because he conquered sin. No longer could hold him, see. So the announcement of the victory was that Jesus went to the cross in the final battleground, on the final final, uh, warring place, and he took on the devil there and he conquered him. And when he conquered him, he conquered sin and he conquered death. Now what does that mean? It means that if you're in Christ, you're not going to die. And it means that if you're in Christ, you have victory over sin. I love it. And that, in my opinion, is... the. Is the, is the heart of the death of Jesus. Whatever else we talk about, what we talk about, He paid the price for us. He was the substitute for us. He was vicariously offered for us. He, he justified God in forgiving us. Whatever else you say about that, at the heart of it is, is that He came to 
meet the devil on the devil's battlefield, and he beat him there. And when he beat him there, he, he, he conquered sin. And we are free from it when we place our faith in him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful message of the gospel that Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. Help us to believe that message, to trust that Christ who died. In Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. We want to invite you to come and accept Christ tonight. Place your faith in Him. What He did for you, you can't do for yourself. Well, you have to trust Him to do it. Appropriate His by faith. Join our church maybe tonight or to commit your life to Christ more deeply in a rededication of your life. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.